0: Go ahead, skin it, skin that smoke wagon and see what happens
1: Huckleberry. a that fact. That's a fact. Welcome to the beautiful campus of LCMSU, everyone. Who are you? I am the Chancellor. Yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. Marcus <laughs> Zill. That's a fine. I'm
0: on Jack and Uncle Hi. too.
1: Back for a second time in a row, Dr. Stephen Hine on the side of a mountain up north of me in Monument, Colorado. Where is Monument?
0: About 10 miles north of Colorado Springs. I'm
1: at 5,400 feet. What elevation
0: are you at? My house sits at 7,400.
1: So you look look down on me in more ways than one. (laughs) Great to have you with us, Steve. Dr. Stephen Hines serves as the director of Concordia Institute for Christian Studies. So last week, gave an overview of apologetics. Now we're going to take a look at apologetics, really starting off in the ministry of Jesus. It's always good to start with Jesus. So where do we start? How can we see apologetics at work in the life and work of our Lord?
0: Well, this is, uh, I think, a very important observation that I really want our listeners to focus in on here. Uh, At our last session, we wanted to make the case about the importance of apologetics and how it was that even uh, the Apostle Peter, uh, there in his uh, epistle, uh, is telling us that uh, it's really important for us to be able to prepare ourselves to being able to make an able defense uh, for the faith that is within us. Uh, when questions arise or when challenges uh, have to be faced, and we talked about its role and an importance in relationship to evangelism, and yet the question uh, or the issue might be raised: Well, if this is really so important, we would imagine that uh, in the New Testament witness of Jesus and the apostles, they they would have engaged in an apologetic ministry, not just in telling. Uh, what the faith is that is to be believed about Jesus, but why it is that unbelievers should regard it as true. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to look briefly uh, at the New Testament ministry of Jesus and the apostles and to see how apologetics was a part of that ministry. And I thought a good place to begin, perhaps, uh, is one of uh, the episodes that's in the Synoptic Gospels. It's there in Matthew 9. I'm sure uh, probably most of our listeners are somewhat familiar with it. And that would be uh, Jesus, uh, as he heals this paralytic who is lowered down uh, on a pallet, this is one that, in Luke's account, he says this was an individual that was paralyzed from birth. In other words, there was no psychological problem to this man's paralysis. Our listeners have a Bible handy. They might want to turn to that passage. We'll try to paraphrase it. Not,
1: not if you're driving. No, no reading the Bible and driving.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to paraphrase it. There is a crowd that has gathered. Jesus is in this home. And uh, uh, they actually lower this guy down on a pallet by an opening in the roof, okay, Uh, to try to get him into the midst of Jesus. And Jesus sees this guy laying there, and uh, he says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's really important for our listeners to understand the way Jesus couches those words. He does not couch them as if to say, look, friend, I forgive you. As if somehow the paralytic had done some offense to Jesus and Jesus is offering some personal forgiveness like we ought to forgive one another uh, for those who may have uh, crossed us uh, or offended us in some way. When he says your sins are forgiven, he is in essence saying God forgives you. Now, everybody understood, of course, that two things are the case. Number one, forgiveness is only something that can occur in heaven. And the reason that it can only occur there is because of two things. Number one, only God can forgive sins, and that's where he is. But when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he is indirectly saying two things that everybody in the crowd understood. He is saying, first of all, the forgiveness of sins, God's forgiveness— has come to earth. The second thing that he is saying is that he has the authority to provide them. In other words, that he is God in their midst. What's fascinating about this account is that there are some in the crowd who murmur against what Jesus has just said, and they say, this man blasphemes. Uh, Now, that's a technical word, and our listeners need to appreciate what it means. Blasphemy in Jewish piety and in Jewish law is involving taking God's name or his prerogatives in vain. It was considered to be a capital offense. Jesus, understanding their skepticism about what he is implying, namely that he's God in human flesh and he has the authority to forgive sins, asks everybody in the crowd this question, which we need, of course, to consider as well. He asks them this question, which is easier to say, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, this is what we would call a rhetorical question. (laughs) Jesus doesn't answer the question. He assumes that his uh, listeners know the answer to that question, and we might, of course, uh, assume the same thing for us. But let's think about that. Which is easiest? Not, he doesn't say, which is easiest to do. He says, which is easiest to say, meaning to claim, that is, Claim that he has the power to forgive sins or to claim that he has the power to make this guy rise and walk simply by his word. Notice one of the claims is intangible, the claim to forgive sins. And we as Christians are those who are like this paralytic, betting our happy forever, that when we meet our maker and say we're with Jesus, that's going to cut it with the Father. That is to say, that intangible claim is what we are trusting for ourselves. And therefore, the question is, is it really true? takes the one claim that they can see and links it up with the other claim that we are trusting that cannot be directly seen until we meet God in heaven. And so he says to the crowd there, and he says also to us, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say to you, turning to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And everybody watches. Imagine what would have been the reaction of the crowd if this guy struggles to get up and falls right over on his butt. That would have been the end. Sure. His ministry probably have been the end of Jesus. They'd probably taken him out and stoned him. But man takes up bed and walks, and notice the punchline there at the end of this account, and people are amazed that God had given such authority among men. Namely, they got it in terms of Jesus having not only the authority, but therefore the identity to forgive sins. Here is where we see evangelism and apologetics, We can distinguish them in this account, but we can't separate them. In terms of evangelism, Jesus is proclaiming the message that he has the authority to forgive sins because he is God here on earth standing before them. And that is, of course, the central gospel message. Jesus, of course, has come to earth to bring the forgiveness of sins to us because he is God in human flesh. But then notice apologetics, the defense that this is true, and that is the miracle that he works. So we have the fact of the miracle being the support for the claim, which is the central claim of the gospel, Jesus is the incarnate Son of God and forgives our sins.
1: But in reality, you know, the, the skeptic of apologetics would say, well, yeah, well, we can't, when I'm talking to a person who doesn't believe, and as skeptical, I can't raise someone from the dead. I can't make someone get up and walk. Um, however, that's where the role of our serving as, as eyewitnesses, our job, is, is to make the argument, if you will, uh, by
0: eyewitness account of what Jesus did here, correct? Very much so. When we think in terms of the miracles of Jesus, we need to think in terms of two things. Number one, Jesus is setting forth the credentials that he is a heavenly physician. You know, when we have problems, it's always smart to trust the doctor in terms of their diagnosis and in terms of what they are prescribing for the cure. Even though we may not have any direct knowledge of our own, either about the nature of the problem or the cure, we should trust the doctor. That is, we should trust the doctor so long as the doctor is the doctor. In other words, it is smart to be able to examine whether or not a would-be doctor truly has the credentials uh, that commend him as being the doctor. This is what Jesus is doing. He is setting forth his miracles as support that he is the heavenly physician who is both willing and able to take care of the problems of sin and evil as they afflict us, both temporally and eternally, including the death problem. And he uses them that way. What is fascinating is that while there were many who disbelieved in Jesus, there is no witness that we have out of the first century. Not simply from the friends of Jesus and those who believed, but even those who disbelieved, who in any way questioned the authenticity of his miracles. Hmm. Simply wished to claim that he did them by evil supernatural power, not good supernatural power. But they never questioned their veracity. And Peter uses this, we might mention. Uh, On his first Pentecost sermon, we might think, okay, uh, the evangelism commission begins there at Pentecost, and it's recorded there in the second chapter of Acts. What is it that uh, that Peter begins with? He says to the crowd there, we proclaim to you Jesus of Nazareth, a man commended to you by many signs and miracles that he did in your midst, as you yourselves know. Notice how apologetics Hmm. uh, is one of the very first things that Peter uses, just as Jesus did, to announce the ministry of the gospel in the New Testament church.
1: Wow. I mean, he's establishing, Peter's establishing, okay, this is common knowledge among all of us in the room here.
0: Exactly. Uh, it's common knowledge for all of those who were gathered there uh, on Pentecost uh, when they preached to those crowds. And, and then he goes on to say, uh, now you guys, speaking at least to those who were enemies, sure. you killed the authors of life. And about killing good guys, of course, they're dead and buried, just like, of course, even King David was dead and buried. And I suppose if we rummaged around, we could find his tomb somewhere. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Uh, But uh, God did not see fit to let Jesus remain in the grave. God raised him from the dead, and here comes the apologetics. And of these things, we are witnesses. Hmm. And there comes the apologetics. So evangelism, the resurrection, God raised him from the dead, the apologetics. And of that, it's a fact. It's a fact because we have corroborated eyewitness testimony. We're the witnesses to this incredible event where death has been conquered.
1: So uh, speaking of testimony, let's Sometimes the the passage about John the Baptist comes up here where he sends his disciples off to go and you know ask Jesus are are you the coming one? How does that uh, does that tie in here in terms of this corroboration?
0: I think it does. And and I think we we've been stressing the importance of apologetics in the work of evangelism. As it were, giving a reason, giving a defense for the hope that is within us in the context of our witnessing life to the world of unbelief. But apologetics also has an important role for Christians. That is to say that uh, as Christians, we not only need to know what the faith is uh, into uh, which we have been baptized, but we need to know and have confidence about why it is that it should be regarded as true. We call that the foundations of faith, okay? That is on how the trust of faith is grounded in the facticity of faith. And in the Christian life, sometimes doubts can arise. Sometimes the reasoned arguments of unbelief, uh, if we find that somehow we do not have responses to it, sometimes doubts can, uh, uh, can crop up. Uh, for us. And I think we have an instance of that recorded in uh, the gospel of Luke. If we wanted to think of John the Baptist and his connection with our Lord in the third chapter uh, of Luke, uh, Jesus uh, comes up to John the Baptist and John makes this incredible confession of faith. Hmm. He says uh, to everyone else, as he sees Jesus coming Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What an incredible statement of faith. And, uh, but as we move through uh, the narrative there in Luke, John's ministry at that point of having um, uh, baptized Jesus begins to decrease, and Jesus' ministry begins to increase. And when we move forward up to the seventh chapter of Luke, we find that Luke has been uh, imprisoned and soon will be martyred. In the seventh chapter of Luke, though, John seemingly seems to develop some problems of doubt about whether Jesus really is that that promised Messiah. So he sends his disciples uh, off to find Jesus, and we have this situation where They find Jesus, and the disciples ask Jesus this question. They say, we're here from John, and John has this question for you. Are you really the one who is to come, or should we look for another? In other words, is it really true that you are that promised Messiah? And what's fascinating, uh, and this is what I imagine, I, I imagine that they probably find Jesus somewhere maybe at the beginning of the day. Jesus is about ready to do a day's worth of ministry, and he hears them ask this question, but he doesn't immediately answer it. He simply goes about a day's worth of ministry, and of course the disciples are still standing around, seeing everything that's going on, waiting for an answer. (laughs) At the end of the day, Jesus then turns to the disciples and his response is recorded there in Luke 7. He says, now go back and tell John the things that you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the dumb their hearing, the crippled are, are healed, uh, dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Notice that kind of a response. Hmm. This is what Jesus is presenting to John, and it seems to me he's presenting it to believers in all generations who may have doubts about the truthfulness of Jesus really being that promised disciple. And what he offers, of course, are the credentials. Mm-hmm. And that's what his public ministry in terms of his acts, particularly in his miracles and signs, are there to do. To show those Christians of any generation who may have doubts about the truth question, uh, whether Jesus truly is the heavenly physician who can take care of our problem of sin and evil as it afflicts us both temporally and eternally. So here is where Jesus is ministering apologetically, uh, not to unbelievers, uh, but to believers uh, in terms of how it is that doubts might arise for us that our understanding of the truthfulness of the gospel might be shored up with strong foundations.
1: Wow. are there any other places uh, in the New Testament where the apostles kind of carry this out as as they learn
0: from our Lord? One place, uh, and I would like to read it. Yeah, please do. It's talked about The importance, when we looked at Peter there on the Pentecost sermon, where Peter says he begins apologetically on this idea of eyewitness testimony, okay? Uh Uh, And not just his witness, uh, but the witness also of his hearers, when he says, you know, men of Israel, we commend to you Jesus of Nazareth, a man commended to you by many signs and wonders that he did in your midst, as you yourselves know this business of eyewitness testimony. And with Thomas on the resurrection, we mentioned uh, not only do we have a testimony that they saw Jesus, but they handled him. Uh, they didn't see a ghost or an apparition. They ate with him. Uh, you can't eat with a ghost. Uh, you can eat with the ghost can't. Uh, but notice how John, and I'm going to read this, in his prologue to his first epistle, wants to pull together all of these elements of the witness that they are making so that faith is founded on fact. I'm going to read here. This is the first four verses of the first epistle of John. This is how he is commending to his hearers, who are Christians, the foundations of faith, that which from the beginning which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Notice what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have touched with our hands. All of this, of course, Being a general statement of exactly what it was that Thomas himself personally uh, received from the Lord there in the upper room in John 20 uh, with that resurrection appearance. At the conclusion of John's Gospel, after the appearance to Thomas, what's rather fascinating about John's Gospel is that John only records seven. Of the miracles of Jesus and then the resurrection. Seven, of course, is a number uh, in Judaism of completeness. Mm. We know going back to Genesis, uh, God worked for six days of creation, and the seventh day, because all was completed, he rested. There is a sufficiency with that notion of seven. But then in John's gospel, uh, if, if, if we go to the synoptic gospels, my goodness, you get seven miracles before you ever get to the eighth chapter. But John is very selective. And, and then he presents that eighth day miracle, the resurrection. And then he says, after the appearance to Thomas, he says, now, many other works, many other miracles that Jesus did, okay, than those that are recorded here in my book but these are written so that you might believe so that you might know that jesus is the christ and that believing you might have uh, life in his name in other words seven and the eighth day miracle is more than sufficient to ground uh, your conviction and trust in jesus in the evidence of his credentials to be the incarnate son of God and the promised Messiah.
1: Fascinating stuff. Um, Next time we're going to take a look at dealing with objections. Thanks so much. Good to have you with us today.
0: Thanks so much, Marcus.
1: That's a fact. That's a fact. Well, that's all we have time for here today. Check out lcmsu.org and remember college is tough. You need Jesus, we'll help.